It's the season of the year when, if you have grapevines, it's time to prune them. If you have fruit trees, it's time to prune them. You want to get that pruning done before the sap rises. Almost everything in, uh, wow, that's an exaggeration, but I'll finish it. Almost everything in my world has the potential to be personified. So uh, when my daughters were little and they would not eat their peas, then I would say, now that little pea, it looked forward to being eaten by a little girl. And there were other big bully peas around it that said, you're not going to be eaten by a little girl. You're going to be fed to the pigs. You're just going to end up in a landfill somewhere. And that little pea would say, no, I'm not mother, am I? I'm going to be eaten by a little girl. (laughs) All right, parents, that's a freebie. (laughs) Works every time. So, uh, yeah, there are a lot of... I think about, how's this tree going to feel if I cut it down? I mean, I I go ahead and I cut down the tree, but I I think about that thing. I think, well, this tree was growing 60 years ago, and it's seen a lot. And uh, Anyway, I think, how does does a fruit tree feel when it sees me or you walking into the, the orchard with the pruning shears? How does the grapevine feel? And uh, I personify it, and I think, oh, no, here he comes. He's going to hurt us. He's going to cut us down. And uh, so you've got to speak kindly to your, uh, to your trees and say, no, I'm doing this for your good. You will be a better tree as a result of this. I, I'm pruning you, vine, but I know it hurts now, but it's going to be for your good later on. And... Uh, You and I can probably, if you think about it, surely you can think of times when uh, you might not have known it that morning, but God was coming into your life with his pruning shears. And when he started cutting, you thought, oh, no, God is, is going to hurt me. God is hurting me. This situation is hurting me. And then hopefully you can point to many instances as I can that out of that painful pruning grew a, uh, a, a more fruitful branch. Out of that painful pruning uh, grew a deeper trust in the Lord. C.H. Spurgeon tells about a, a woman who uh, mysteriously wrote T.P. next to certain passages of Scripture in her Bible, T.P. And when her pastor asked uh, her, what does that mean, she said, that means tried and proven. This is a verse of scripture that uh, didn't mean so much to me until I needed it at a particular time in my life. And I found that God's word, when it's tried, is proven to be true. The uh, title of this morning's message is When Hard Things Happen to God's Children. Uh, an early version of that title will sound familiar to you. I thought about entitling this, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I think that there's at least one book that has that title, and of course that's not 
the sort of thought that you can get a copyright on, you, you wonder all the time, why do bad things happen to good people? But I decided to reject that title for this one, When Hard Things Happen to God's Children. Because I really believe that when it comes to God's children, there's never anything that is essentially and finally bad. And you say, well, preacher, you're going to have to explain that to me because I think there's some stuff happened in my life that is bad. But what I will hope to show you is that even those things that we initially think are bad, God's attacking us with the pruning shears, or somebody is, that uh, even that is used in God's hands to accomplish good. It's hard, but even that is used in God's sovereignty and in His wisdom to accomplish good for his children. So I changed the title, the early title, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, to When when Hard Things Happen to God's Children. Because I don't think that everybody indiscriminately has the right to say everything that happens to me is for my good. But those of us who are united to Christ and who are under the Lord's protection we have the assurance that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, in saying that all things work together for good, I think there's an important uh, opportunity for me to make an important point. Even if you grant that some things are the work of Satan and some things are the direct result of sin, and so let's just go ahead and say that's bad. Yet God in his wisdom is able to combine that bad thing with something else and make it good. He works all things together. So a good illustration of this principle is that uh, sodium by itself is a a poisonous substance. If you eat pure sodium, it'll kill you. Furthermore, chloride is poisonous to humans. If you eat chloride or drink chloride, it'll kill you. But table salt is comprised of sodium and chloride mixed together. And so sodium chloride is something that used in in moderation is good for you. In fact, it's hard to be healthy if you don't have some sodium chloride in your diet. But that's a great illustration of how God can take Things that are the work of Satan, that are the result of sin, those are bad things, and he works them together for our good. But if you are not a child of God, you cannot claim that verse for yourself. Because it says, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord, the called according to his purpose. And so... uh, If you're a child of God, though, you know that really, ultimately, no no bad thing, let me put bad in air quotes, no bad thing is ever going to be allowed to remain bad in your life. It may be hard, but God will use these hard things to accomplish His purposes for His glory and for your good. And uh, the the first point that I'm going to make, and I usually just have two or three points, and uh, they're fairly easy to remember. I, I have about nine points for this sermon. 
And uh, so I don't plan to spend but just two or three minutes on each one. I've tried to make them fairly memorable so that if you want to jot them down, it should be fairly easy to do so. But this is a a sermon from a a story in the Bible uh, that happened to the Lord Jesus that will give us nine principles for how to cope with life and how to think when hard things happen to God's children. Let me, read the, let me read the story, and then we'll go back through and uh, discover these nine principles that are revealed here. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. Now, when they had departed, they, here being the magi, the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother. And flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream... He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, so nine nine principles to help us negotiate life when hard things happen to God's children. First of all, uh, be discerning. Be discerning, and by that is that I'm saying that hard times are not necessarily the result of our sin. There are some people who have sensitive consciences, and that's a good thing as long as your conscience doesn't begin to rule you in an unscriptural way. And uh, so I think that when, when you encounter hard times, it is wise, it is biblical to say, is this because of some wrong thing that I have done? And is the Lord disciplining me? Because the Bible does teach that God disciplines his children, and it is an indication that you are his child. But after giving an honest search of your life and asking the Lord, if nothing comes to mind, if he doesn't bring anything to your mind, then it's likely that this is a hard time that God has sent, not because of a sin, but but for the purpose of training you in godliness. Uh, in John chapter 9, we read that Jesus and his, his disciples encountered a man who had been blind from birth. 
And his disciples assumed that if someone had been blind from birth, then surely someone had sinned, either this man or his parents. And so they asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And then he performed a miracle. He spit on the ground. He made mud with the spit and the mud. He put it on the man's eyes, told him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And the man went and washed and came home seeing. And you can read that entire story in John chapter 9. But I've brought it up for Jesus' answer to the disciples' question. Who sinned? And Jesus said, that's not what caused this. Rather, this happened for the glory of God. And so... I could point to other, other passages of Scripture in the Bible where something really hard happened. The death of Lazarus. And Jesus says this sickness will not end in death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Well, the people who loved Lazarus sure did have four days of misery. Hard things. Be discerning. Not everything that happens to you is because you have done something that is wrong. But because obviously Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. You talk about a hard thing happening to a a man who didn't deserve it. Here's baby Jesus, less than two years old. And uh, he may even be small enough to be carried in arms. Well, if he's two years old, he's getting carried most of the way to Egypt. He definitely had not done anything to deserve this. And yet, Herod seeks to, uh, seeks to kill baby Jesus. So the first thing is be discerning. Secondly, be humble. Now, I don't get this directly from this text, but it follows, the first, it follows from the first point. Be discerning. What happened to you is not necessarily because of some sin. But on the other hand, nobody can ever say, I don't deserve this from God. Now, there are plenty of times in the Bible, especially in the book of Psalms, where the psalmist will say, I don't deserve the way somebody is treating me. And I don't think you're being a a whiny baby if you say that. If you say, someone has treated me wrong, this is wrong, Lord, I lift it up to you. But no one can say, God is being mean to me. Because you deserve, and I deserve, a whole lot worse than whatever hard time we're coping with. Charles Wesley has a a lovely hymn, and the refrain of each stanza is, Tell it unto sinners, tell, I am, I am out of hell. Now that that gives a real perspective to uh, what a hard time you're going through. If you think, I deserve to be suffering in hell right now, but God has had mercy on me instead. Uh, Be humble. No one can ever say, God is treating me unjustly. During the lifetime of Jesus, there, was, uh, a, there were a couple of events that happened that if there had been evening broadcasts uh, of the news, they would have made the news. One was when there was a tower in Siloam that fell, and it fell on 18 people and killed all 18 people. And, uh, and then there was another instance where uh, a pilot, the governor, uh, came down upon some people who were offering sacrifices and he killed these people 
And uh, they noticed that the blood of the humans was mingled with the blood of these animals as, as it flowed from the, from the sacrificed animals and from the murdered humans, their blood mingled. And so Jesus brings both of them up, uh, both, of, both of these incidents up to make a point. He says, those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell, do you think that they were worse sinners than others? He says, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those, those uh, worshipers whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices, do you think that they were worse sinners than others? And then he answers his own question again. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all likewise perish. So Jesus makes a spiritual application of both of those in saying, you deserve to have the tower fall on you. You deserve to have your blood mingled with the sacrifices. But God spared you. These 18 fell. These, these worshipers, they, they were not spared. But God has had mercy on you. Take advantage of the opportunity that God affords you and repent before it is too late for you. Unless you repent, you all too will likewise perish. And the principle that underlies that is that Nobody can say it was unfair for God to let this tower fall on the people of Siloam. No one can say that God was behaving unfairly when these people were killed and their blood mingled with their sacrifices because everyone deserves to be punished by God. And so in the midst of your hard times, you may be able to say some human has done me wrong, but you can never say God is dealing harshly with me. So be humble. Number three, take comfort. God is aware of your situation, and he is aware of your situation before you are. We see that illustrated in this text. Joseph apparently knew nothing about uh, Herod's plot, but an angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him, You've got to flee to Egypt because Herod is going to try to kill the son, trying to kill the boy. And uh, so God is aware of your situation before you are, and, and so you, we can take comfort in that. Jesus says, why are you anxious about your life? You, you can't make one hair white or black. You cannot make yourself grow even one tiny increment of, a, of an inch. Why are you worried about these things? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. They don't have food stored up. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You're much more valuable than birds. God's aware of your situation. Or consider the flowers of the field. They, they don't toil, they don't weave cloth, they don't toil or spin. And yet the richest man that you can think of, Solomon, even Solomon in all of his splendor was not arrayed like one of these. And if this is the way that God treats the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he take care of you, O you of little faith? Therefore, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
God's aware of your situation. This past week, I visited a a dear friend that I'd known for about 50 years. Uh, She died yesterday, but uh, I I knew that she was dying when I went to visit her. And it occurred to me that uh, throughout her life, she had often been worried about her financial situation. And uh, there were various kind of money-making schemes that she engaged in. The sort of thing that uh, all your friends, when you start selling that pyramid-schemed thing, that your friends think, oh, no. And uh, so I can, I can think of instances where here is some money where this is a way that she thinks she's going to make money. She, and uh, she, she had worry, concern about, uh, about physical things. But she was uh, 83 years old. And she never starved to death. So she died of old age. Do you know anybody who has starved to death? It's possible that you do, especially if you've lived in a foreign country. But I don't know. I've never been personally acquainted with anyone who starved to death. And I've known a lot of people who manage their finances very poorly. And uh, who who, who just never had anything... David says, I have been young and now I'm old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. It doesn't mean that it never happens, but David said, I've never seen it. And I I would have to join my voice with David. God is aware of your situation. I don't know if it was David who wrote Psalm 121, but the, the psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going. From this time forth and even forevermore. David did write a similar psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I've got somebody who knows the situation who is taking care of me. And so be comforted when hard times come your way. Understand that God is aware of your situation. And from this passage of scripture we can also see that we can trust God. That's number four. Number three was take comfort. Number four is trust God because he is able to direct you. He is able to direct you. As he did here, uh, three times in this passage, we read about Joseph being instructed in a dream. And uh, two or three weeks ago, I talked to you about dreams, saying that I, I still think that God sometimes communicates to us uh, uh, in dreams, communicates things to people around the world, but it never contradicts his written word. And uh, so, but I I, I don't think I can think of a single instance that I can point on that I I made a decision based on this dream that I had. As I shared with you then, I think that there are things that the Lord has revealed to me at night and uh, in Psalm 16, it says, my, my heart instructs me in the night seasons. And uh, so I think that God uses these 
uh, seven or eight or nine hours that we spend to sleep. And if we submit ourselves to him throughout the day, that he uses, uh, he uses things to help us at night. I don't think that this is the primary way that you are to seek the will of the Lord. Uh, but three times here we see that Joseph had a dream and God used it to direct him. And the principle that I'm gleaning from this is trust God, he is able to direct you. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 say this, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on thine own understanding. So if it comes down to a contest between what you think is right and what God's word is right, you follow God's word. Trust in the, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In your, all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. What it says in the King James Version, more modern translations will say, He will make your path straight. He will make your path straight, which is essentially the same thing. It's not hard to follow a straight path. And so trust in the Lord with all your heart, and then trust that He is able to direct you. If I were hard pressed to identify what my favorite short poem in English is, I think that I would say, William Cullen Bryant's poem, To a Waterfowl. And I love the poem and tempted to quote the whole thing to you, but it would require a little explanation. I'll just turn most of it into prose for you. So William Cullen Bryant writes about seeing one single waterfowl. He doesn't say if it's a duck or if it's a goose, but he sees one single waterfowl flying through the the sunset. So he sees the, the, the form of this waterfowl uh, painted darkly on a crimson sky. And he begins thinking about it. You know, this, this duck, let's say, this duck is flying to a... He's migrating. He's going to a destination. God is going to guide him to the exact place where he needs to go. It may be hundreds. It may be thousands of miles away. And uh, then... He reflects upon himself, Uh, but I mean, well, first of all, I will quote this stanza to you. He says, he who from zone to zone guides through the pathless sky, Uh, well, no, I'm not going to quote that one to you because I can't remember it, but but he ends up saying, "If if God guides a waterfowl, then in the long way that I have to go alone, he's going to guide me. That's a very biblical way of thinking. If God guides waterfowl, then he is also going to guide us. So, number four, trust God. He is able to direct you, as he did to Joseph here. And when he directed him, notice that he did not say, get get together a little gang of men and murder Herod. Instead, he says, flee. Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. The principle that I draw from that when hard things happen to God's children is when you can escape with honor, do so. When you can escape and not compromise your honor or compromise your testimony, then do so. And uh, this would apply to physical persecution. We have examples of that when, when Saul was pursuing after David, then David David fled from Saul. He didn't continue to stay in the palace with Saul. He, he got away from him and lived for several years out in the wilderness. 
Uh, when Jesus heard that uh, the heat was being turned up in Judea, then John chapter 4 says, when the Lord learned of this, he went back once more to Galilee. The, uh, on more than one occasion, people had the resolve to kill Jesus. You can read about this in Luke chapter 4. They were going to kill him, but Jesus walks through the midst of them and goes on his way. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, well, go ahead and kill me. The apostle Paul, when he knew that there was a plot to kill him, was one time let over the wall in a basket. If you can, if you can escape persecution without compromising your honor, without compromising your witness, and without endangering your family, then flee when you can. But certainly this applies to spiritual attacks that you encounter. When, when Joseph was in the, the house of Potiphar, Potiphar's wife tried to force him into a compromising relationship. And Joseph ran away from that situation. And I think that that's the number one way to deal with sexual temptation is to run away from it. Just don't even consider it. And, uh, but it applies to spiritual as well as physical things. When you can escape with honor, do so. Jesus and his family did. So number five was flee. Number six recognize that bad people do bad things. So Herod uh, is the guy who is behind uh, this dangerous plot to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. There is behind Herod a more wicked power. I think we read about it in, in Revelation chapter 12, a great red dragon. Satan is behind Herod. Herod may not be conscious that he's a tool of Satan, but he is. As I said last week, he is a fang in the mouth of the dragon. But recognize that bad people do bad things. We live in a world that is full of unsaved, sinful people. You can't expect them to act like saints. You are going to encounter bad people. And, and so to be, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Just don't fall prey to the idea that somehow people are always going to behave according to reason and they're going to behave according to principles of righteousness. There are lots of Herods in the world and there are probably some of them in your own life, in your family, in your workplace. Bad people are going to do bad things. Number seven, wait. Wait. So he rose, took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. Don't know how long that was, but he remained there until the death of Herod. When I was a boy, I would occasionally hear a song sung, uh, the chorus of which went, Till the storm passes over, till the thunder sounds no more, till the clouds roll forever from the sky. Hold me fast, let me stand in the hollow of thy hand. Keep me safe until the storm passes by. Sometimes the reasonable thing to do when there is a terrible storm is to get into the storm shelter. So in the book of Psalms, we find the Lord described numerous times as being my, my fortress, being my high tower. Those are places that you go for safety. 
And so take refuge in the Lord and wait until Herod dies, till the storm is over. Number seven was wait. Number eight is see the big picture. Try to see the big picture. As I said in the introduction, everything works together for our good. God works all things together for our good and for his own glory. And this is true when the outcome is what we hoped for, and it's also true when the outcome is not what we hoped for. And I think that we have instances of each in this text. First of all, when the outcome is what we hoped for, Jesus is preserved and Scripture is fulfilled. Verse 15, they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So God has his, his mysterious ways of working all the pieces of the kaleidoscope so that his, his desired, beautiful picture is reflected. The, the Old Testament had prophesied that uh, Jesus would spend some time in Egypt, and now he spent some time in Egypt, and God calls him out. So there the outcome is desirable, but the next section is when the outcome is not what we hoped for. Verses 16 through 18, we read how that Herod, when he found out that he had been tricked by the wise men, uh, viciously went and had all the baby boys two years old and under who were in the region of Bethlehem killed. Uh, <clears throat> now, Bethlehem was a small town, and so it may not have been many baby boys who were under two years old, but he also says in all that region. So it's possible that, uh, that there were many little baby boys who were killed. And uh, this is a... This is a vicious, inexcusable act by Herod, but at the same time, Herod was inadvertently fulfilling a verse of Scripture that we read from the book of Jeremiah. The voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so God is at work to accomplish all things for our good and for his glory. Finally, when hard things happen to God's children, be flexible to God's direction. In verse 19, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Let me just break off right there and say something that I really probably should have said earlier, and I'll come back to this. The book of Hebrews, the very last verse in Hebrews chapter 1, says concerning angels, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So angels are in some way superior to us. At least right now, we are in a condition that is inferior to the angels because we're subject to death. Jesus himself was made for a little while lower than the angels so that through death he might accomplish our salvation. And uh, so at, at least now we are in a position lower than the angels. I do believe that Psalm 8, Hebrews chapter 2, teach that a time is coming when humans are going to be exalted to a place superior to angels. And uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul is reasoning with the Corinthians to work out their troubles amongst themselves 
and not take it to a secular court of law. He says, don't you understand that we are going to judge angels? So we're going to be exalted to a position of of authority and responsibility above the angels eventually. But at this time, angels are ministering spirits that are sent forth to serve those who will inherit salvation. And that's you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, it may be that, uh, surely, I say it may be, but surely there are many instances of times when we have been spared, have been protected through the instrumentality of angels. I think it's important for me to put it that way. It is God who uses angels to accomplish his purposes. It's not just that an angel comes up with the idea. They're all ministering spirits sent forth to serve those who will inherit salvation. Back in uh, the 1970s or 1980s, there was a song that was popular on Christian radio. There went something like this. Maybe I can remember all of it. Take this man to prison, the man heard Herod say, and then four squads of soldiers came and carried him away. Chained up between two watchmen, Peter tried to sleep, but beyond the walls an endless prayer was lifting for his keep. Then a light cut through the darkness of the lonely prison cell, and the chains that bound the man of God just opened up and fell. And running to his people before the break of day, there was only one thing on his mind, only one thing to say. He's got his angels watching over me. And then the next stanza says, God only knows the times my life was threatened just today. A reckless car ran out of gas before it ran my way. Near misses all around me. Accidents unknown, though I never see with human eyes the hands that lead me home. But I know they're all around me, all day and through the night. When the enemy closes in sometimes, I know sometimes they fight. To keep my feet from falling, I'll never turn away. If you're asking what's protecting me, you're going to hear me say, he's got his angels watching over me. Uh, The dangerous thing about that, that song is that we might give angels all the credit. But no, angels are used by God to protect us, and at times, apparently, to inform God's people. Now, I think that this way of informing us of God's will has largely ceased, but I don't see any reason for saying that it has totally ceased forever. What you must do is always know that an angel of the Lord is never going to tell you anything that is contrary to the word of the Lord, the written word of the Lord. And since we have the written Bible, that's why I think that these supernatural forms of of revelation, dreams and angelic visits, have been relegated to a far second place in comparison to what the Lord reveals to us in His Word. So, value the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Reading the Word of God will equip you with principles of wisdom that will help you to discern God's will without an angelic visit. We have an instance of that here. So, back to the text. An angel appears to him and says, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who saw the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So he he obeyed what the angel said. But Israel has many districts. And uh, where should I go? Well, he obviously was intending to go back to Bethlehem. As I explained last week, I think that after Jesus had been circumcised and dedicated to the Lord when he was, when he was 33 days old, uh, 
I think Mary and Joseph went back to Nazareth it's in the north. That's why I'm making that motion. Went back to Nazareth and then came back and set up a household in Bethlehem. I think that's where the wise men came and visited him in Bethlehem. And then from Bethlehem, they go into Egypt. So after when the angel says, go back to Israel, then Joseph thinks, okay, we're going to go back to our house in Bethlehem. But then he, he finds out something. An angel doesn't have to tell him this. He finds out, verse 22, that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, and he was afraid to go there. Now, God strengthens that, and he, he's warned in a dream, and so he doesn't settle in Judea. So Judea is a, a big area in the southern part, and then, then there's Samaria, and then at the north is Galilee. And uh, so Joseph was going to settle back in Judea, but he hears that Herod's son, Archelaus, is reigning there, and so he's afraid to go there. Now, that's just, that's just common sense. That's just biblical wisdom. And I think that that is the primary way that God directs us in our lives today. We are saturated with the Word of God. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God. And, uh, and you... you sometimes just know what to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with committing everything to prayer, but uh, sometimes you, you pretty well know ahead of time, but submit it to the Lord. So be flexible to God's direction. Follow God's principles of wisdom. I often think of uh, an experience that I've had many times while picking blackberries. So uh, when picking wild blackberries, there are times when you look around and you think, I have picked every blackberry in this patch, except for that one over there that I'm going to have to tromp through 10 yards of briars to get to. All right, let's go for it. And so you tromp through those briars to get that one blackberry, and then when you get over there, you see there's a whole bunch of blackberries that you never saw. You, you went after that one. That was the only one that was left as far as you could tell. But you get over there and then, ah, <laughs> the blackberry patch opens up and you get all these new blackberries. And um, I think that's the way it often is when there's only one door open in your life. And you think, well... That's the one door. I'll go through it. And then you go through that one door and God opens up what you're supposed to do next. I encounter this on a weekly basis. I come to a passage of Scripture like this and I say, how am I going to talk 45 minutes about this? Well, here's one thing I could say. And I write it down. I go after that one blackberry, and then lo and behold, there's another one, and another one, and another one. And so the principle that you and I can gain from this is follow God's principles of wisdom. Pick the blackberry, follow God's word, and then it will be shown to you what you must do next. Let me review these nine things just in case you were trying to take notes and didn't get them all. First of all, be discerning. Not every bad thing that happens to you 
is because you sinned, but be humble. You can never say, God is treating me harshly. Number three, take comfort. God's aware of your situation even before you are. Number four, trust God. He is able to direct you. Number five, flee when you can escape without, when you can escape without harming your family, without harming your reputation or your witness. Flee. Number six, recognize that this world is full of bad people and bad people are going to do bad things. Number seven, wait. Joseph waited until Herod died and there are times, not everything that needs to be done needs to be done right now. Not everything that needs to be said needs to be said right now. Wait. Number eight, try to see the big picture. God is working things together and uh, though we may have uh, rough patches, yet the path leads upward. And then number nine, be flexible to God's direction. You know, if I were not a Christian, I think I would hear this sermon and say, I wish I had the confidence to face hard times the way the preacher had just described it. That would make my life so much simpler to know that God is watching over me and God is in control. Well, no, your, your main problem is not that obnoxious person at work. Your main problem is not even whatever family problems you're, you're encountering. Your main problem is that you are not right with God if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you want the, the kind of assurance that the Bible offers to those who love God and who have been called according to his purpose, then pick this blackberry today. This blackberry right here. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. And then it will be shown you what to do. Jim Bob, come lead us in a concluding hymn.